that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, Lord, and give wisdom and insight, Lord, as we seek to become like Christ and uh, bless him as he shares today. Anoint him powerfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you weren't, um, you haven't been primed for a sermon about Catholicism because that's not, that's not really what I'm going to do. I'm not going to talk about it too much today. Just a few words maybe at the end. Um, but what we are doing is talking about the seven deadly sins. And if you ask me, we've been through quite a journey. You know, we've talked about greed, lust, gluttony, sloth, rage, and envy. And now we find ourselves here today, wrapping up the whole sinful cesspot with pride. And in the words of Vanessa Williams, we went and saved the best for last. Because as far as most lists of the seven deadly sins are concerned, pride is the worst. It's often been considered the root of all the rest. It's almost like pride is proud of being the baddest in the bunch. So buckle your seatbelts because we're breaking the speed limit right into the heart of Sin City. But I got to say, I'm, uh, I'm not really sure why Gordy picked me to talk about this today, since I don't really have much firsthand experience with pride. Um, I'm probably the humblest person I know, so maybe he just wanted like an outsider perspective or something. I know other people who obviously struggle with pride. I could tell you who they are. But what I am sure of today is that the truth... The truth will come out one way or another, so I'll be quick to confess. But let's just start things off by taking a look at the pathology of pride. Scripturally speaking, uh, the Bible gives us lots of everyday kind of wisdom about pride, but it doesn't give us anything like a developed psychological profile of what pride is or how it works. And you'll notice that with a lot of the other sins that we've talked about. We just don't get that kind of information. I think one of the reasons for this is because Scripture mostly assumes we know what the sin already is. But that might be assuming too much in today's culture. For example, everyone who is arrogant, says the proverb, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Now, beyond a general sense of of, well, yeah, don't, don't be arrogant. What's this piece of wisdom really supposed to mean to me as a Christian in the 21st century? I mean, maybe I'm being arrogant all the time and I don't even know it. Some of you are like, yeah, obviously. But for sure, maybe I have just a really healthy dose of self-esteem. What's the difference? You know, what's the difference between what our culture has taught us is just good self-esteem and what the Bible says is just basic arrogance? It's one of those questions where we can't actually expect the Bible to just come out and say what the difference is. But I will give you a hint. Most of the Bible's references to people who like esteeming themselves usually end up as examples of what not to do. In any case, we'll come back to that. But for here, I want to suggest um, that the Bible's distance from our time and place makes these kinds of questions really hard. I don't know about the rest of the teachers, but I found it quite difficult to prepare this sermon because we're not exegeting one passage of Scripture. We're looking for a theme, a sin in particular. And as we go about trying to say what that is, it's almost like we have to trust certain other opinions, sources other than Scripture, in order to compile 
and opinion. And that's okay, because I'm going to do that here with Reinhold Niebuhr. Niebuhr was awesome. Doesn't he look great? I mean, in another life, he might have been like Dillinger or something. Capone, pretty, pretty cool looking. Um, he put the smack down on lots of crooked stuff he saw going on, um, particularly in the church, but also in general through the, the first part of the 20th century. And here's a factoid, Obama. Obama said that Niebuhr, this, this Niebuhr, was actually his favorite philosopher, for whatever that's worth. I don't know what his philosophy means to him, but in any case, Niebuhr broke down pride into three categories. First, there's the pride of power. The pride of power shows itself when we grow dissatisfied with our limitations as creatures made by God, and we look to make our own way by our own effort. Niebuhr says, the pride of power believes itself to be the author of its own existence, the judge of its own values, and the master of its destiny. It's the sin of those who, knowing themselves to be insecure, seek sufficient power to guarantee their security, inevitably, of course, at the expense of other life. Maybe it's strange, but uh, some of my favorite movies are about people who do precisely this, where they let their pride of power completely destroy them. I guess I get a sense of self-satisfaction. Some might call it pride. That if I watch it happen to them, it won't happen to me. So if you've ever seen any of these movies, you've watched The Pride of Power at Work. And how about a classic like Citizen Kane? I mean, everyone should have seen Citizen Kane. Just a blanket statement of what we should all do. And how, do you, how are we supposed to feel at the end of the movie when after, yeah, the end of the movie, when he's gone through all the, well, this is a spoiler for you, so cover your ears if you haven't seen it, but you're not going to watch it anyway, are you? So at the end of the movie, after spending so much energy and effort to attain and secure his own welfare, his own well-being, his own wealth, you know, we end up seeing him on his deathbed, and he whispers one word, Rosebud. And the whole movie is a journey of trying to understand what is Rosebud. It was his sled when he was six years old. It never got better than that for him, despite all that trajectory into uh, his ego. It's a great movie. Anyway, uh, I can learn a lot about things from the movies, I think. But we can also learn a lot from Scripture. So in the words that John was told to write to the church in Laodicea, Here's basically the same thing, the pride of powers at work. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not even realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Second, the pride of knowledge. It's a good one for me, let me tell you that. The pride of knowledge shows itself in the intellectuals who think they have the final word on truth. So they've found for themselves an unteachable spirit. They've already convinced themselves they know everything there is to know. And it's a deadly trap for people who really and sincerely desire the truth. But it's a trap for them because they're so easily convinced that what they found is the whole ball of wax. Again, Niebuhr says this kind of pride pretends to be more true than it is. It is finite knowledge gained from a particular perspective but it pretends to be final and ultimate knowledge. Someone suffering this kind of pride is always able to show the limitations of other people's beliefs 
and where they fall short, but when you turn the tables on them, then they don't feel so comfortable. The proverb goes like this. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Thank you, proverb. And here's Paul's version of the same idea. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And here's the Peanuts version of the same thing. I love this. I hear you're writing a book on theology, says Charlie Snoopy. I hope you have a good title. Oh, I have the perfect title. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? (laughs) So good. So finally, uh, Niebuhr points us to the pride of virtue. Wow, I will go long today, I can tell already. Okay, so just prepare for that. I'll do the best I can. The pride of virtue is the kind of self-righteousness that happens to people when they mistake their own standards for God's standards. Or when your goodness becomes the definition of all goodness. And if that happens, you're in big trouble. In Niebuhr's words, since the self judges itself by its own standards, it finds itself good. Go figure. It judges others by its own standards and finds them evil. Moral pride is the pretension of finite man that his highly conditional virtue is the final righteousness, that his very relative moral standards are absolute. Love that. And if you need a translation, because there's some big stuff in there, he's basically just saying everybody likes to think that their shiitake mushrooms don't stink. (laughs) Well, they do. And whatever goodness we possess is just a reflection. It's just a mirror. It's just a broken shard off a mirror of the goodness that God possesses. (laughs) Yeah. Puns are hard to translate, aren't they? They're tough. Don't confuse your shattered mirror's goodness with the infinite goodness of God. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians, if anybody thinks he's something, earlier it was thinks he knows something, now it's just if you are something. If you think you're something, when you know you're nothing, you deceive yourself. And I want to dwell on this point for a few minutes to see how actually this is good news. I want to look at a fascinating story in Luke's gospel, chapter 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Without, uh, without a break, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. What is this all about? Well, hold on to that thought for a second. Crystal and I have been reading a book that's been pretty popular in the parenting department. I don't know if anybody's heard of it. It's made some waves because it was trying to. It's called Nurture Shock. And the subtitle is currently New Thinking About Children. But originally, it was Why Everything We Think About Raising Our Children Is Wrong. Yeah, so it it made some waves. The basic gist of the book is that they've been conducting research that debunks a lot of the so-called new science of parenting. Now, I'm an ignorant procreator about the new science of parenting, so I hadn't really heard about a lot of the things they thought were trendy, even though the things they think we think about raising our children might not actually be what we think. 
It's what many of the experts have been telling parents to think for the past little while. So these guys are the experts who tell the other experts they're wrong and think differently, and we should too. <laughs> Make sense? In any case, it is actually pretty good because it ends up affirming a lot of the, the you know, traditional wisdom that some of us inherited. One of the most interesting chapters is on self-esteem. And the chapter is called The Inverse Power of Praise, Why Praising Your Kids Can Hurt Them. And contrary to the idea that constant praise is good for kids' self-esteem, the, act the authors say, actually, it really matters what kind of praise you give them because not all praise is good. For instance, if you tell a kid they're smart all of the time because you really want them to have good self-esteem when it comes to school and whatnot, that's fine and good when they're counting turtle shells. But what happens when they hit algebra and they start to fail? Studies are showing that kids who are constantly praised for being smart actually underperform when real challenges come. When things get hard, they flounder. And an educator is saying, mm-hmm, so I'm glad, glad there's some corroboration here. When real problems arise, they actually avoid having to face the challenge. And that makes sense, because if you're being told, oh, you're so smart, I can't believe how smart you are all the time, and then you hit a real snag, you flunk the test, what's that going to mean? It's going to mean maybe I'm not as smart as they told me I was, or I wouldn't have done so poorly. And that's because all this time, they've been hearing that they possess a quality, but haven't been told they can do anything about it. What's the difference between being told you're smart and being told you have brown eyes? You have such brown eyes. Oh, your eyes are so brown. In terms of what the child hears, there's not much of a difference. And the question of smartness is completely located in the sense of identity. You are so smart. But when the challenge comes, that, it's that much easier to feel stupid. Here's the idea in cartoon form. I'll let you read it while I drink some water. So the authors explain, the authors explain that if you praise kids for their effort, if you praise them for their effort, for making the attempt, what happens now is they're being praised for something they can do something about. Their identity is not at stake because the praise has been located in their behavior, and behaviors can change. If I failed on the test, it doesn't mean I'm stupid. It means I need to, I have some things to work on. I need to try harder. And whether I fail or not, I've been praised for facing the challenge, for trying new things. So then, back to the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, and he says, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? But Jesus completely avoids the question for the moment, because a window has opened, a teachable moment. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why does he say that? Well, I do want you to have the rest of the scene in mind. So before we, we talk about that, uh, let's, just, let's just talk it out. Before even letting the guy respond to this bomb he just dropped, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Quick as a wick, he says, you know the commandments. And then he lists some of them, clearly intending that these are some things the rich young ruler should do if he wants to inherit eternal life. And the guy says, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. So Jesus says, okay, well, one more thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. 
then follow me. Scripture tells us the man walked away sad. And whatever else this story means, I think it provides us with a lesson that's a lot like what we learned about kids and smartness. That is, what we just heard about nurture shock is that if we're interested in developing intelligence, you know, teaching children how to learn despite challenges, it might be counterproductive to go around telling them how smart they are all the time. Similarly here, if Jesus has come to show us humility and virtue, to reveal to us the way of life that leads to communion with God, we got to start off on the right foot. We cannot afford to be confused about where our goodness will come from. The very Son of God puts up his hand and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you come here telling me I'm good? Only God is good. And the emphasis isn't actually on whether Jesus is good or not, because we know he is. The emphasis is on how this guy can find it so easy to identify that goodness in someone else. Could it be that he's merely seeing in Jesus the quality he likes most in himself? It's kind of like when someone comes up after a sermon with a big grin, and no one here ever does this, says, well done, preacher. That was, sure was a good message. You sure did bring the word of God today. Well, you know, it might be worth asking. Maybe the sermon was so good because it only confirmed every opinion the guy had before he came into church that morning. And how nice that feels, just to know I'm right. So again, Jesus doesn't actually deny his own goodness. He might even be hinting that he's God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. It's kind of like saying, how do you know that I'm good? How do you know that? I suspect Jesus was preparing this guy to be challenged, to face a challenge with the idea that his sense of self was wrongly placed. Like Niebuhr warned about the pride of moral virtue, I think Jesus could see that this rich young ruler was looking at the world and judging it through the lenses of his own standards, as if that's all there was to it. And that's probably also why Jesus had to go farther than the Ten Commandments with this guy. He had to take him to that one source of identity that he held on to in order to justify that delusion, to convince himself he was right about the world. Go sell everything you have, rich young ruler. That's how he's identified in Scripture. He's a rich young ruler. And so he's told, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man defined as being the rich young ruler walked away sad. Because to accept that challenge would mean giving up his self-sufficiency, admitting his dependency for everything, even his goodness. It would mean giving up his pride. Sorry if I'm moving quick. Some of the best words on pride that I found were written by C.S. Lewis. And in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he has this to say. It's a long quote, but I can't put it better. So in my obvious humility, (laughs) I might as well read his words. Just kidding. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. 
A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. And that raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say that they believe in God and appear themselves to be very religious? I'm afraid it means they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. There's a bit more here. Yikes. I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. But luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we're better than somebody else, I think we may be sure we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. Thank you, Clive. And he brings up a good point here about the devil, because one of the questions we've been trying to ask ourselves through this series is what good do this, does this vice offer apart from God and his ways? And the answer today, I'm sad to say, is none. Apart from God and his ways, this vice in particular makes you Satan. <laughs> it's the devil who shows us what happens when we esteem ourselves without reference to God. When we don't submit to God as the one who is immeasurably superior to ourselves. When we don't do that, our sense and our need for worth run rampant, and we end up exalting ourselves over everybody else. For more info, see the biography of Satan. Isaiah 14. <laughs> How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. What you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. On the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. That temptation is irresistible when we don't submit to God. But I can at least say that the good which pride is aimed at but fails to, to hit the mark whenever we do it outside of reference to God, the good that it's aimed at is our sense of self-worth. My point right now is that that's impossible to discover without God. And that's why pride is considered the worst of the seven deadly sins, because apart from knowing our self-worth as children of God, any attempt to establish it on our own is inherently sinful. Again, Clive, on the way. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness even among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between, God and, between man and God. Pride is enmity because apart from submission to God, the energy we spend trying to esteem ourselves necessarily means we push other people down. And it's not that way in the kingdom. You're hearing that over and over again. 
so we can move quickly to the third part of our sermon that we need to deal with, the judo concept, which is, um, was really clever. I really liked that, the judo concept. Good job, Gordy. Yeah. What do we do to turn pride into humility? If we've come to believe the lies of pride, and like the rich young ruler, we've confused our identity with something arbitrary, like our worth, our net worth, you know, our power, our, our knowledge, or our limited sense of goodness. What do we do? And the way I see it, the way, we can only do two things in response. First, we can simply wait. We can just wait. Because nature will take its course. Pride has a funny way of getting sniffed out for what it is and completely exposed. And in the aftermath of that kind of delusion, uh, you're not proud anymore. Let's just recall Niebuhr's categories here. Because at every point, certain challenges are going to come our way whether we want them to or not. We live in a fallen, fallen, broken world. And despite our own best efforts, things are going to happen in all of these three spheres. And what we do get to choose is how we respond. Will the challenge be used as a chance to exchange our pride for humility? Or are we going to plunge farther into the lunacy of thinking we are, in and of ourselves, powerful, wise, and good? Either way, such lunacy will be challenged. If we suffer the pride of power, what will all that financial security amount to when the tsunami comes? What will we do when, despite the power of our own medicine, our bodies simply rebel against our every intention? Let us remember the frailty of our flesh, because even right here and now, we live by God's grace alone. And if we don't believe that, we will be reminded eventually. Even when we're not proud ourselves, but have somehow been trusted with suffering, like we've been praying for Chloe. Next, if we suffer the pride of knowledge, what will we do when all our answers fail us and we have to admit that some things are beyond human explanation? The world is mysterious more than it is rational. And that's a terrible and humbling reality because how will our reason help us when we face the chaos of just senseless violence? I was with... It was with my family in St. Louis several years ago, and there were gangs that were going around. Their initiation was to go up to old people and punch them in the mouth, and the guy died because of this 16-year-old randomly choosing someone to punch in the face, and he had a concussion and died. Like, what, what use is your reason in the midst of that kind of senselessness? And we all have our own thing we can think of there. Let us remember the limits of our minds. If we suffer the pride of virtue, finally, oh man. <laughs> if we suffer the pride of virtue, we will be humbled one way or the other. And if we wait to be humbled, rather than humble ourselves, it's going to hurt. Uh, this won't go the way you think it's going to go, but I'll, I'll start like this. Some very close friends of ours are relocating to Scotland so he can start a doctorate in theology this fall. But we, we just found out that the advisor he's going to be working with was just found guilty of groping a girl half his age on an airplane. And this guy is the president of the Society for the Study of Christian Ethics. He's just been convicted of sexual assault. Yeah, whoops. 
And as you let that sink in, I'm asking you to be very careful. I'm not bringing this up because I think his story is a good example of how pride of virtue can ruin a man, although that's probably true. I'm not bringing it up because of how shameful this whole ordeal is for him, though of course it is. I'm bringing it up because of how shameful it was for me to have responded in the way I did initially, as though I were any better than him, when really I should have heard it as a warning and a call to prayer. No one is good except God alone. Our enemy seeks to destroy us, and one of the best ways he's found to do it is by tempting misconduct out of any visible figure who stands up for virtue. And then he uses the fallout to tempt the rest of us to judgment about who this Christian ethics professor really is or whoever else is being in the throne in the mud that week. Well, let me just say this. We can't blame the world for thinking what they do, but if we're Christians... It angers me, mostly because I still do it, when we entertain the smear campaigns against others in the body of Christ, as though such sinners making headlines aren't a part of us. Who are we kidding? They are us. By nature and destiny, humanity is one in Christ. We are members of one singular noun called humanity. All have sinned and all have fallen short And someday all will stand before Christ. And at that point, every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. And we're going to do that because no matter what sins anybody there has committed, no matter what particular sins have led them to submit, only one of us has actually gone to the lengths to become sin itself. And that's Christ who destroyed it in obedience to the Father. So I don't care if it's the priest scandals, the money-grabbing TV evangelist, or the distorted gospel preached by the fundamentalists. If we find it easy to stand on our virtue over and against the likes of them, who's guilty of pride now? Who's holding up the walls of division that Christ came to destroy? Which is a perfect moment, I think, to read a parable you all know well. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Can someone else read this, please? Thanks, Edwin. Somebody else? Thanks, Stephen. In his commentary on this passage, St. Benedict points out that the Pharisee gave thanks. Not that he was good, but that he was peerless. His gratitude was inspired not by any good that he saw in himself, but by evil he saw in other people. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, such as these. That was the fullness of his speech before God. 
What's the sinner praying? Have mercy on me, a sinner. And you know what I find so instructive about this passage, especially in light of the, the shame I felt over entertaining that smear campaign against my friend's advisor. What I find so instructive is Jesus could have told us, he could have made up a sin that has brought this tax collector in. He could have given us some detail about what it was. Collecting, ta- collecting taxes isn't a sin. And the inclusion of that detail is actually meant to shame us for looking down on him. But, you know, Jesus could have easily included one more detail about what it was that he did. What was it that he was convicted of? And he doesn't do that. And that's because it doesn't matter. Our enemy is the one tempting self-righteousness out of us by encouraging us to dig for the story on someone else's sin. And yes, we need to hold our our leaders accountable. Yes, we need procedures for dealing with sin that is public and destructive. But there's a difference between striving to restore the peace of God and stirring up enmity like we're tabloid reporters. So if we suffer from the pride of virtue, let us remember the depth of our sin. I'm wrapping up here. I know we're going long. But I said there were two ways we could exchange pride for humility, and I said the first was simply to wait, just wait, because eventually you will be brought low. But in this parable with the tax collector, particularly, Jesus points us to the second way, the better way. Instead of waiting to be humbled, Christ calls us always to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves in his sight, because he will lift us up. As he said, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And once we've understood the depth of our sin, how how can we not humble ourselves before the one who became sin for us? Paul says he became sin itself, that we might become the righteousness of God. Talk about being exalted. Every challenge to our pride is now a gift from heaven. It's an invitation for us to humble ourselves so he can lift us up. Because, oh, I didn't know that was in there. Thank you for showing that to me. I'm going to try and kill that little bit of pride that's still left. I thought I got it all, but you know what? My response just now to the driver who flipped me off, yeah, that's a pretty good reminder. In short, Jesus loves us too much to let the lies of our pride go longer and longer and unchallenged. And meeting him always means being given the choice to confess our habits of self-esteem. And in response, he makes room for the working of grace. Now, if you'll endure it, uh, some of you have noticed that I've cleverly avoided discussing the fact that this is our last Sunday here today, at least in a formal sense. Um, But I should probably say a few things about that transition because it's actually no surprise to me that we're talking about humility today and our need for it. Because I'd say um, my personal journey towards Catholicism over the past few years has had a lot to do with that need. It's had a lot to do with hearing clearly the call to learn humility and being required to do something about it. And, of course, you understand I'm saying that I'm not remotely humble. I'm just saying I'm actually saying the opposite. That for me, at least, becoming Catholic is very much a part of responding to Christ's call to lay down pride in a way I haven't done before. And I'll try and explain that if, if I can real quickly. It starts with realizing that our submission to Christ must be complete. He wants all of us. And I'm convinced he uses his church to affect that submission. The church is his gift to us to help us surrender our pride and accept grace. 
And in my case, where the temptation to pride, especially the pride of knowledge, is so strong, I think it takes something like the Catholic Church to bring me to that place of surrender that goes all the way down. Some people can do it differently, so this isn't a slight on anything that we're experiencing here in the vineyard. It's not. I promise you that. But for me, becoming Catholic means self-consciously yielding my own powers of judgment, my own sense of needing to be right into the hands of Christ and his body. I've had to check myself along the way. Am I doing this only because I want to be right? Or is it something else? And it is. Uh, It means being willing to be taught more than to assert my own opinion. And in fact, this is interesting, the Catholic Church makes that point of submission very clear to Protestants who are seeking full communion. You have to say, I believe and confess that all the Holy Catholic Church teaches and believes is revealed by God. That's part of the the liturgical service that you go through in order to make the transition. And it's interesting because a cradle Catholic never has to say that. They make the Protestants say that. As we're thinking about. Now, uh, whether this church is worth trusting in such a complete way or not is not on the table for discussion here. That's not what I'm talking about. Obviously, I've come to think it is, but let's not debate that now. That's not my point. My point is that I think God knows me well enough that he's called me to the Catholic Church so my submission can be complete if I let it become so. So, yes, I feel really bad for Crystal that she's had the misfortune of marrying someone like me. Because she certainly doesn't need any lessons in humility. But anyway, as we do this, we need you to know that we're not doing it in any way that we think of it as a break with you all here. We see it as building a bridge. Because the upward call of God in Christ is heard and pursued here too. So it's not about being right versus wrong. And that's why we still do intend on coming to visit and participating in worship and even teaching, maybe, if you'll have us. I'll leave the Mariology and the Pope stuff out. Just kidding. But like I said almost six months ago, we're going to make it hard for you to forget about us. And we ask you to continue to pray for us. We haven't had a chance yet to get involved in any parishes uh, because of our schedules here mostly. But we'll start September off with a, a bit of a rest. Then we'll start exploring. Uh, The actual movement itself will take some time. And Crystal said that she may never really come to a place of decision about really becoming Catholic, and that's okay. We're just trying to be faithful as a family to what God is calling us to. And in that regard, my gratitude to God for you all here is so extensive. We can't thank you enough for all the ways you have helped us to hear God and live in obedience for your friendship and love. So we love you so very much. And we hope you can view this transition as an opportunity for yourselves, too, to see and experience how broad and deep the body of Christ is. I really hope we can serve you that way as bridges to these crazy papists, and we can discover how much we have to share in Christ. I won't deny that I've had dreams where we all come into the Catholic Church together so no one has to say goodbye, but I realize no one's going to get used to that. I think, I think it kind of suits him. <laughs> maybe, maybe blue's more his color. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> got to get him in while I can, these little, these little digs. No. <laughs> no, I'm sure not.
<laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, considering our move into Catholicism, I thought we could end today in good liturgical fashion with a litany of humility. This was written by a cardinal under Pius X in the early 1900s. You don't have to participate if you have reasons not to. That's okay with me. So the italic part we say together. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. And that others may be loved more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. We didn't pray anything that Paul didn't already pray by becoming all things to all people or Christ demonstrate by becoming sin for us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your spirit would go with us from this place to live lives of virtue and humility. We ask that we would be reminded of our unity in you, that we would be reminded of our rebirth in you as these two young people get baptized today. Our hearts rejoice in the overflow, God, with the joy that these have been brought to bear witness to your salvation. I pray that we would all be such living, living letters of that grace. We love you. We worship you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm having Alec back to speak and teach until I saw that last picture. That's it's funny, the first sermon he ever spoke here, he had a similar kind of dig. Um so it's all good for my pride. <laughs> a couple of scriptures I was thinking of. First of all, for Alec and Crystal, Jesus says, My sheep know my voice, and they follow me. And uh, 
So we trust the voice of the shepherd on you guys and, and, and leading. And I think that's a, the essence of, of what it's about. And I think we've heard that today from Alec. And the second thing that came to mind, and, and I'm just reading this out in obedience. Brothers and sisters, Paul said, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So in the spirit of that heart of restoration, um, let's make our way to Trout Lake and continue this worship time together. We believe that worship is singing, it's kneeling, it's prayer, but it's also fellowship. It's interesting that so much of the early church's worship, including the life and ministry of Jesus, was centered around mealtimes. So let's go in the presence of God to do that. Why don't we stand together? And I know there's probably people that want prayer, that want to respond to this. I would encourage you at the park just to continue this. We're going to meet and and have our uh, our baptism as soon as we can, probably within about 45 minutes. We'll be baptizing South End, Trout Lake. Just look for us there on the beach. The lifeguards know we're coming. The water levels are good. They're clean. Uh, uh, so we're uh, they're they're expecting us. Um, so let's just go and kind of focus. You know, if you have to pick up your kids, get your kids. Uh, help people cleaning up. There's people that are cleaning, people that have to lock up. Maybe we could just some could pitch in, helping deliver stuff down. Uh, all of that. Just be watching out for one another, giving each other rides. Let's just be the body. Thanks, Alec. You know, when Al, I, I just, at the end of that sermon, I just felt like those, those guys, you know, for the Lions or those football teams, you know, they catch the ball in a, in a touchdown. What do they do? They go... Like that? And they kind of have this little ritual, you know, and they start. I just kind of wanted to get up and do that with Alec. But uh, anyway, uh, home run, buddy, or a touchdown or something. Yeah, that was a good sermon. Wasn't that good? He's got to come back. Got to come back. Yeah, for sure. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and empower you to live a Jesus-centered God-honoring week for his glory. Amen.